Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Hello, and welcome to Anachronismo. I'm Noel. I'm Jackie. I'm Max. Today we will be talking about the aquatic adventures of American administrators. <laughs> Mary Anning, fossil hunter. And New York violin maker Samuel Stochek, who made violins out of the floorboards of condemned buildings. He made violins out of the out of haunted houses and buildings. It's not haunted, condemned. And yes, but they were haunted violins. Yes. They were ghost spooky violins Hauntingly. that played by themselves and Hauntingly beautiful violins. That's not what I asked. <laughs> well, you'll not see. Not even close to one. Wink. All right. That was a good wink. That was a loud wink. Yeah, well, right into the microphone. All right. So, a little bit of a break from form is today I do not have one story. I have three little tiny mini stories involving aquatic adventures, misadventures, and pranks played by three former U.S. presidents. I'm really hoping one of them was Teddy Roosevelt, and his prank was he just threw someone into the ocean. No. Dang it. Sorry, but very close to one of these uh, one of these pranks. Oh, uh, hell yeah. Did someone throw Teddy Roosevelt into the ocean? No. Did Chester A. Arthur dress up like Teddy Roosevelt, sneak up behind somebody, scream, I'm Teddy Roosevelt, and then kick them in the butt, and they fell in the ocean? Well, I don't know if Chester A. Arthur would have been as involved... Or if Teddy Roosevelt would have been as prominent of a political figure for him to parody and for people to be like, oh, I get who's he, who he's pretending to be right now. <laughs> you know, he was a very forward-thinking president. Chester A. Arthur. Chester A. Arthur. Apparently he was super Precog. fashionable. and he uh, Dressed he up like, like Teddy Roosevelt all the time, yeah. No, much more like stylish and like latest fashion trends. And he got, when he left the uh, White House, he got four marriage proposals. Dang. Though, where I read it, it sounded like he was just, as he was leaving the White House and first, you know, becoming a, I guess, private citizen again, yeah. he got... Four proposals. Yeah. One after the other, all lined up. Yep. All of these women just throwing themselves at him. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I never knew anything really too much about him, except, you know, one-term president. And uh, for each term, for each year, he got a marriage proposal. Nice. That's pretty good. Our most smoochable president. Yep. Smoocher-in-chief. Four sets of lips. Just mwah, all in unison. <laughs> I didn't oh. realize we had any unmarried presidents. Oh, yeah. Just Ray Arthur. Hmm. And uh, I think one or two others. I don't know. If I thought they head. were like widows. No, I think there were some bachelor presidents. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, so I'm going to cover this in historical order. So first, can you guess which president had feet for hands? An alligator as a pet in the White House. Uh, Andrew Jackson. Teddy Roosevelt. No, and no. Really? Really George not Washington. Teddy Roosevelt? No. John Adams. Former. Ooh, getting warm. John Quincy Adams. Yes. yes. Actually, fun fact, there were two presidents that had alligators living in the White House at one point, but Herbert Hoover <laughs> just... was not a pet. <laughs> or, or it was, I think Herbert Hoover had his sons, when they would visit yeah. him, brought them. It wasn't him. a pet, it was hunting him. <laughs> the matter of Captain Hook. Yep. <laughs> so, John Quincy Adams, who also, a little aquatic fun fact, also would skinny dip in the Potomac River. Nice. During his presidency. Like, he would swim for, like, an hour, like, a day, or, like, every couple of days. And his doctors were like, this is too strenuous of exercise. You're engaging in these delicacies too much. It's too dangerous. Your body can't take it. You'll be torn apart by the raging currents. Damn it, Adams. No, so, uh, Lafayette, the French general, mm -hmm. actually gave John Quincy Adams an alligator as a pet, as a gift. And they, the White House was still under construction at the time, so they put it in the unfinished East Room. There was a bathtub there, and they just kept it in there. And then it got too big to get out of the room, and it just lived there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it never, I couldn't find whatever happened to it. Does, at what point they decided that this was too big of a present, but. Doesn't say that my thing didn't happen, so I believe that it's there still, mm -hmm. with just the snout poking out the door. Yep. And occasionally they have to feed it an intern. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, I found varying accounts. Some say that guests heard about the alligator and were like, we don't really believe this, and got shown it. And, and fed to it. Other accounts 
be like, come forward, interns first. We wouldn't want the alligator to be hungry when he's meeting the real guests. And other accounts say that they used to prank people by having them open the door to an alligator in a, in a bathtub. Which I guess not many, I don't know how many like Americans would have seen, heard, like known what an alligator looked like and just be like, oh Jesus! Yeah, like, it's a dragon! Uh, Your log is very sick. It's the first alligator. Oh, that's where they all you came know, from. Like, Bo is like the first dog. Oh. First alligator of the United States. I assumed you meant that that alligator was where they spawned because Lafayette was some sort of demiurge shaping alligators from the logs of the Mississippi. No, he's just no. the Otis alligator of the United States. <laughs> what was its name? Did it have a name? No. Uh, oh, if you were to name it. Snappers. Oh. Oh, the first so one's cute. the best one. <laughs> not, not gonna outdo that. <laughs> Rumble yep, tummy. Because I'm imagining he was always hungry for interns. Mm. <laughs> No, I would have called him John Cayman Adams. I'm going to go with Quackers. Quackers, the alligator? Just in case somebody thought, oh, I'm going to try and find the alligator. The last directions to the fearsome sounding name on the animal registry, which turns out, oh, it's just a little puppy. They don't think to ask about Quackers, who they assume is a duck. I get it. I get where you're going with that. In case someone tries to kill and eat the alligator. Yeah, that was a A to B kind of plan right there. So, next aquatic adventure of amphibious American administrators. So, which president do you think scared people by driving his car into a lake and telling them that they were all going to die? This is the most famous one. I knew this and I forget who it was. I remember this too. Is it like that it was a waterproof car? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Oh, I got the details. Okay. Do you have... I forget who it is. I want to say JFK. Because JFK stands for just fucking kidding. Truman. No. No, that's because that's a lie, man. Oh. Wow. Herbert Hoover, and that's that's how he financed the Hoover Dam. If my car gets in the river, I want something to be able to stop it. (laughs) Put up this dam. Um, no, and no, you were closest, though. With JFK? Reagan. Yep. The guy who took over after JFK got shot? Yep. Lyndon B. Johnson. That's it. Apparently, in the 60s, uh, Germany had built, uh, the exact number, 3,878 amphicars. Amphicars? Amphicars? Amphicars, probably. Amphicars, yeah. Amphitheaters. Yeah. Johnson had one, and he had it on his ranch, and so what he did in one account from a uh, special advisor he invi- he invited to his ranch, and he had his White House secretary with him, um, he was just driving down a hill, and as it started to go down, he shouted, the brakes don't work, the brakes won't hold, we're going in, we're going under, <laughs> and um, just drove right into the water. <laughs> And apparently, the, this Joseph Califano <laughs> tried to jump out of the car, or like started to get ready to like open the door. But when he realized that the car was floating and that it was one of these like amphicars, the president started teasing him and said, "Vicky, did you see what Joe did? He didn't give a damn about his president. He just wanted to save his own skin and get out of the car." <laughs> uh, and he was like, oh, "If it wasn't a crime to strike you, Mister President, <laughs> if it wasn't treason, I'd slap you right in the face." Yeah, it was a, oh, that's such a cruel and amazing prank. That's so mean. It's so mean. Oh. Like, I, if I were pulling this, I can't imagine how I would not go through the whole day with a big dumb grin on my face. Like, hey, uh, Lyndon, why are you smiling so big? No reason, just a beautiful sunny day. Let's go for a drive. Get in the car. You want to go, you want to go for a drive in the car, buddy? Come on. I, I do want to go for a drive. Come on, you want to go for a drive? You want a treat? You want a treat? You, I do want a treat. Yeah, let's go for a drive. <laughs> if the Califano family is listening, we deeply apologize. I don't think you're dogs. Treason. Or, dogs. you know, a dog. I just stand at the top of the hill with a big um, pair of shears. <laughs> so it looks like I got the brakes. Just you rolled under the car, cut the brakes, and rolled away. I'm just like waving at them. Bye. <laughs> Man on that grassy knoll, he cut the brakes. That was a second snipper. You know, the weird thing about not dropping out of the car, obviously just pictures so people can look it up, was it looks like a convertible. So oh. don't know why they, like, I mean, even if you crashed into the lake. I, you, you would have time. Yeah, just get out. You wouldn't out, need to but, open the door. Yeah. So. Maybe the roof was up at the time. 
Oh, that'd be even crueler. Oh no, and the roof won't open either. And the rocks appear to be welded shut. Oh. oh man. So why do you think that Germany even made these clearly not military grade cars to All do this? Luxury items. Germany had a booming economy at the time. Is there really that much demand for car boats? I mean, was it World War One or World War Two that duck boats became like duck boats were a thing? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it, maybe the demand was kind of after that because they're like, it's a car, you can drive it in water, just fucking go for it. I mean, I do not think they are still a thing. If there were, though, like I, I'd consider that just being able to just have a luxury boat slash car. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I mean, they were meant for rich people's toys, you know. And, like, the 1960s, there were a lot of wild inventions that were just like, here's something rich people can spend a bunch of money on. It's crazy. We're living in what we consider to be the future, but which the people of the future will consider the distant past. Have you seen that picture of the car that had the, the light tires, like the glowing tires? No. no. Yeah. That's, uh, it's a crazy, th- like, obviously it didn't work because the dirt would immediately obscure the tires, but it, I forget where time it came out, but yeah, it was sort of like just a demo of like, look, look at what these cars can be. They can be so stylish and stuff. And it was actually like the tires just had a bunch of lights in them. So we just phew, all light up and. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds like a good way to break some light bulbs. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know. They, I think more of the like, feasibility would be like uh, like changing the lights, things like that. But it seems like they got a working model. And then it's like, oh, no, if you drive through mud, your tires are going to look awful and block the light. So They later repurposed the military-grade technology for children's sneakers. And now you know the us? rest of the story. <laughs> Among Us was not a beneficiary of that military oh, technology. I begged my parents for those sneakers. I had a pair. They were great. Made you feel cool. And they help your parents keep track of you at night. When you go for your night runs. <laughs> oh, Never? I'm sorry, no. no. Do you have to make your own out of flashlights and sandals? Did your siblings get some? No, no. We, not, none of us. I think my parents just thought they were kind of like stupid. <laughs> and we're just like, no, you're just going to... A, either break them, or B, just annoy people with them, so. These are not really breakable. They're shoes. Hard to break. I mean, I guess you could have gone swimming in them. Were you a shoe swimmer? I wasn't much of a swimmer at all, so. Not like our next president, Chester A. Arthur, and his fashionable scuba suit. It looks like Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) A lot of underwater marriage proposals. He married a mermaid eventually and had a clutch of beautiful children. They were. <laughs> mm. All right, so last story. Which president was attacked by a swamp rabbit when he was out fishing? A swamp is that a euphemism? rabbit? <laughs> I think it is. For what? Hold I, on. A rabbit that lives around swamps. That's I, not a euphemism. I'm, I'm googling swamp rabbit right now. This just looks like a regular rabbit. Yeah. It just, it's okay with getting wet. I love to swim. Oh, it's cute. Oh, there's one in the oh, jaws of an alligator. Oh. Oh, no. In the jaws of a gator. <laughs> that, oh, my God. That's the same, that's the same alligator that lives in the White House. Uh-huh. It's out for revenge. I'm the favorite pet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, which president got attacked by a swamp rabbit? The killer rabbit. As it was dubbed in the press. So it was definitely after Monty Python's Holy Grail. It was around the same time, actually. Okay, okay. Because then some of the news articles actually said that he had fended off a killer rabbit. Um, Jimmy Carter. Yes. Yes! <laughs> so yes, the Jimmy Carter rabbit incident. Jimmy Carter was out on a fishing trip, and a rabbit, they didn't know why, just started swimming directly towards the boat, making like weird noises. And uh, they took a photo of it. It was heading right to the boat, and Jimmy Carter had to like splash water at it, and then it just decided to not go in the boat and swam away. And some photographer got a picture of it. But it made headlines. Like, you would think something like that innocuous is like, yeah, I was just out fishing, like, an animal started to swim to the boat and, like, just splashed it away. But it started to become a big deal because, um... It had a gun. People thought he had something wrong with the story because they insisted that rabbits couldn't swim or they would never approach a person threateningly, so... I mean, if it was rabid. Yeah, I know, which... Or if it's it's a hardened swamp creature. Yeah, which is why I was surprised people were like, nah, it didn't happen. Couldn't have been a rabbit. There was a photo. Maybe he was just taunting him with carrots. My fish aren't biting these carrots today. Hope nothing approaches my boat for a photo op. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that your carrot has a 
So Noel mimed tossing a carrot over, but then it became a fishing rod carrot. Oh yeah, so the it's hooked on. Carrot has a line attached to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's got a hook on it. That's how you get the you get the rabbit, reel the rabbit in. But yeah, apparently it was a front page on the Washington Post that says "Bunny goes bugs, rabbit attacks president." <laughs> this is the Washington Post article. It actually did a little parody of Jaws, which had come out that year, the few years oh, before. Oh, it's got a big old rabbit swimming up from the depths, ready yeah. to eat Jimmy Carter. And it says "pause." Pause. Yeah. Yeah. Guess they were. Hungry for news in August of 1979. News and carrots. So people wanted the photo released, yeah. and the Carter administration didn't. Like they were just like, "It's not really you, this gonna, big of a deal." You probably see the blind panic in yeah. his eyes as you, he splashes at the bunny. And you're going to see the bunny dressed up like a lady bunny, and Jimmy Carter being like, "That's a beautiful woman. I should, I should approach that beautiful woman." And that would have been a whole scandal in and of itself because he was married. That would have. That, I mean, that was yeah. the scandal. Honestly, part. yeah, that would be a scandal if a president, even married or unmarried. Married a rabbit. <laughs> or even just um, flirted with a rabbit. Let alone was grabbed by both cheeks and smooched real hard by the rabbit as if he was lured into some kind of trap designed by the Acme Corporation. Why'd that rabbit have a sun hat and lipstick? <laughs> Why did that rabbit have a beautiful dress? How did it afford it? Where'd it get it? Did it sew the dress? Why did you meet that rabbit wearing huge sunglasses and a really facial obscuring hat at that diner outside of Washington? Follow the bunny. So the photo of Carter shooting away the rabbit, they didn't release it, but the Reagan administration did. So, and not even like, yeah, which is just a, just a mean move of like this president's like, I don't want to release this. Is like, hey, here it is. Old Jimmy scaring off them rabbits from their marriage proposals. I have to read this whole recounting of the story of the rabbit approaching it. Written by Jody Powell, Carter's press secretary. So upon closer inspection, the animal turned out to be a rabbit. Not one of your cutesy Easter bunny type rabbits, but one of those big splay-footed things that we call swamp rabbits when I was growing up. The animal was clearly in distress, or perhaps berserk. The president confessed to having had limited experience with enraged rabbits. He was unable to reach a definite conclusion about its state of mind. What was obvious, however, was that this large, wet animal, making strange hissing noises and gnashing its teeth, was intent upon climbing into the president's boat. Sounds a lot more scary than I initially thought. Well, I mean, yeah, I look Must at been that. rabid. I mean, this is the photo, so... Pretty big rabbit up in the upper corner, upper right-hand corner. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a huge one. And the president's all alone. No Secret Service, no one to help him. Well, there is someone with a camera. (laughs) Definitely like five snipers in the hills waiting to take the shot. I can't. I might hit the president. That's what the president would have wanted. (laughs) And then, yeah, a little other fun fact is that the incident was the inspiration for a 1980 song by a folk singer, Tom Paxton, entitled... I don't want a bunny wunny. I'm surprised at just how this became, like, I would have imagined that this was almost like a hearsay event that totally was like, this isn't, there was a rabbit swimming in a lake that the president was fishing in. How is it relevant? He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He said marry a rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. So some kind of conspiracy that he and the rabbit plotted together to distract the news from his own presidency? Yeah, like he had escaped the White House to just meet up with this rabbit, and then it was swimming to the boat being like, oh, Jimmy, you've come. You've come back for me. And then the press secretary is just like, Jimmy, uh, we got to take some photos. Fo- or probably, she would probably call him Mr. President. <laughs> We've got to take these photos. And he's like, get away. Away, Ralph. <laughs> I don't love you. You said you'd come back for me. You said we'd get married and move to Reno. I can't. I'm the president now. I just can't pick up, pack up everything and leave. You said we'd build houses for humanity. We would make a large underground burrow for our children. Thousands of our children and grandchildren. <laughs> a horrifying half-human, half-Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so half-human, half-Jimmy Carter <laughs> uh, If you could, for show purposes... Rabbit breeding purposes. Uh-huh. Animal husbandry. What animal? What, yeah, animal husbandry. What what president combined with a rabbit do you think would make like the best in show? I would do Abe Lincoln crossed with the rabbit. I think it's really tall rabbit. Yeah, I think it would be physically interesting <laughs> and would also draw a crowd because everyone's heard of Lincoln. I'm picturing a tall rabbit. <laughs> And you can put a hat on him, and it will 
emphasize the ears mm-hmm. or cover them up so that you can it could pass in day-to-day society mm-hmm. that's just a deformed hairy person but like i'm making money off this endeavor i don't know if that was implied by your question but that's where my mind went mm-hmm. so i think abe lincoln is the one that would draw the most breeding half animal half rabbits yeah. just to put them in a half, sideshow and half kinda... president half rabbit yeah. abe lincoln's the way to go i would go with taft because oh, he needs such a chuck yeah, an almost perfectly spherical rabbit, I think, would have a lot of market value. That's pretty cute. Yeah. And plus, if you, they get stuck in bathtubs, and that's a selling point. You can sell them to people in their own little bathtub, and then you know, it's the whole thing. Like, get them out of the bathtub to have fun with your Taft rabbit. Bathtub <laughs> Taft rabbit. <laughs> How about you, Noel? Who would you crossbreed? Which president would you crossbreed with a rabbit? It's <sighs> a good question. Question. It was your question. I know. It's a good, great question. We're, we're playing great hardball question. here. I guess I'm a bit tempted for uh, Nixon. I just think it would look like a ornery, grumpy rabbit, which I actually guess would not win the best in show prize. No, Chester A. Arthur, stylish rabbit yeah. with the fanciest, most modern cloaks. Little wearing a little rabbit fedora with the ears poking through the brim. Oh yeah, Man, yeah. Look. No, Chester A. Arthur. Speaking of fashionable rabbits. Alright, and nothing nothing <laughs> got nothing on that. Speaking of horrible crossed human animal hybrids. Uh, speaking of animals that are astounding and worthy of study. Oh yes. That there one we works. Go. That one works. Speaking of prehistoric <laughs> We're going to be talking about Mary Anning, fossil hunter. She was born in Lyme Regis in 1799. That's a part of southwest England. And she was famous for finding a bunch of really cool fossils. But she has a bizarre origin story of being a very sickly child. And then there was a circus in town. So everyone in the town went to go watch the circus perform, and they were watching an equestrian show, Mm -hmm. and a huge thunderstorm rolled in. So three women, one of them who was holding Mary, go under a tree for shelter from the storm. The tree gets hit by lightning. The three women die, because they also got hit by lightning. But Mary survives, and this lightning transforms her from a sickly child into a very clever and bright person wow yeah is this like a is this like a short circuit situation where the lightning bolt had like a soul in it which is how johnny five the robot got a soul or is this like is uh, that the johnny five cannon i mean i assume i assume that lightning bolts contain souls is how this is how it all just oh okay so you're looking at johnny five as a more like true to life yeah, true to life, real real life story. It's a true based on a true story. Is a true story. True story. Johnny Five. No, I can see by your eyes. I, I've gotten it wrong. I do not know what Johnny Five is. So yeah, sure, okay. it's totally he's, true. He's a robot and he is alive. Okay. Johnny Five is alive. <laughs> um, so that's Mary's fantastical origin story. Mm. It's probably not true, but whatever. I like it. Sounds good. I'm going to imagine that she, instead of, like, the lightning having a soul, she stole the soul and power of three women around her. Mm. She saw the skeletons of those three women flash brightly around her as they were struck by lightning, and she realized her life's purpose, to look at bones! Yes! Yes. <laughs> That's the transition we needed. <laughs> so beautiful. Such marvelous detail. <laughs> So Lyme Regis was really a great place to live if you were interested in fossils, because um, not you... if you were interested in getting hit with a light. <laughs> well, I mean, you, that's where you get it done. <laughs> so two hundred million years ago, Lyme Regis was near the equator, and it was part of a tropical sea. And this area was along the coast by the English Channel, I believe, and it was prone to mudslides and rock falls, which especially in winter, which would expose new areas of the rock and new fossils and things like that. So Mary came from a very large family, but only two of the children survived into adulthood. I think they had nine siblings altogether, and only two of them survived. And her father was a carpenter, and on the side, he was a fossil hunter. So he would sell the fossils to sort of supplement his income. Because this guy, he was, he was pretty indebted. 
the the family was not well off and they were also not Anglican church members so they were in like a lower social standing because it was the official church of England or still is right mm-hmm. the official church of England and you couldn't really go up in society if you weren't in the church so very humble beginnings and she learned to excavate fossils from her father but when she was 10 years old he fell off of a cliff and weakened from that he got pneumonia and died so the father was very indebted so the family was not doing well so mary anning and her brother and her mother they all jump into the fossil business selling like smaller fossils to tourists and things like that but when she was 12 years old her brother found the head of an ichthyosaurus which is like a gigantic gigantic creature the skull is four feet long like this thing's enormous my skull is barely half a foot long i assume i haven't measured my skull So he finds it's more than half a foot. Yeah. Okay. It's oh. definitely more than half a foot. <laughs> I got a big head. <laughs> Six inches is a really small head. Well, yeah. It's going by my forearm. Forearm's about a foot. My head's not as long as my forearm. I'd say you're. I think it's close. About, yeah, close to a foot. How big is my goddamn head? <laughs> it's not abnormally large. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. It's the quarter, well, quarter of the size of a giant monster. Buried deep because beneath the earth. What if I'm a tiny ichthyosaurus? <laughs> That's what we've been trying to get at. Since the first Anachronismo recording. Mm-hmm. Our lost when we called recording. you ichthy. Go and look it up, Vance. It's there. <laughs> so the Anning family starts is working on their business called the Annings Fossil Depot, which I just thought was a delightful That's very store good. name. Yeah. Um, and they were commercial collectors. So anyway, the brother finds the skull, and he's apprenticed to be an upholsterer. So he doesn't have time to, like, follow up on this skull that he found. So it falls to Mary, and she's the one who, at 12 years old, excavates this gigantic ichthyosaurus. And it was one of the first, I think it was the first complete one, or, yeah, either the first complete one or the first one to be recognized as an ichthyosaurus. Like, another one had been found, but it was originally misclassified. It was like a pleosaurus? Um, Like a crummy little pleosaurus? Garbage. She garbage found. Dinosaur. She found two of those. Yeah, garbage yeah. dinos. <laughs> other other fossil hunters trash. That was. <laughs> that one. The the pleosaurus that she found in 1821 was described as a serpent threaded through the shell of a turtle. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love to watch just that day in the life. <laughs> um, and she found her second pleosaurus in 1829. So that ichthyosaurus that she found was reported in the transactions of the Royal Society, and it really got all these gentlemen geologists interested. They would come and visit the store, and she really, like, attracted their attention. And over time, she became, like, an expert in anatomy and the method of collecting fossils. Nice. Yeah, so people would come to her for advice, or she would lead them on fossil expeditions, and it it was really cool. She found the first recognized pterosaur, and for the ichthyosaurus... She found inside of it something called a a bezoar stone. Oh yeah, um, a big chunk of matter that collects in the in the stomach of something. It's like all of the like non food matter that it's eaten that collects and like turns to a big hard rock. Mm-hmm. You can find them inside of goats very often. But Mary was like, I got to know more about this. So she cracked it open, mm-hmm. and inside were teeth and scales. And she actually had found a corpolite which is fossilized poop yep yep (laughs) but she found it inside the ichthyosaurus nice (laughs) very cool just reached right into its colon Mm -hmm. cracked it in half and um, now it's on display in the british museum she also found a cuttlefish and she was one of the first people to note that they contained sacks of ink like current um cephalopod like modern cephalopods Mm -hmm. and the cuttlefish fossils she found the cuttlefish Fossil. That's hard to say. The cuttlefish fossils she found. The cuttlefish fossil she found. The cuttlefish, the cuttlefish fossil. fossil. The cuttlefish fossil she found. Wow. The cuttlefish fossil she found. There's a lot of sibilance in there. Yeah. This is a fantastic transition because she, she is, is the person who they base she sells seashells by the seashore on. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that we both said it in unison, or that they based that on her. Um. Yes. I All think, around. I think both, but more of the... I just never knew that that was actually a story. I thought it was just a... Yeah. 
a lot of children's rhymes are based on actual historical figures, like Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie, mm-hmm. yep. and uh, Running Around the Rosie, yep. and of course, The Murder Man Comes for Us. London Bridge is Falling Down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but wow. I have one more to that, huh? So wait, what is I see London, I see France... I see so-and-so's underpants. Uh, that was based around event. when Napoleon uh, leant over you know, when he was having his portrait taken uh, in London at the time. But he was having France painted behind him and his, his trousers split open and everyone could see his uh, his underwear. And he posed that way for hours while this painting was, <laughs> it was You know, I don't think I believe you. <laughs> I think you're lying to me. <laughs> no, that's that's historical fact. You can look it up. That's in a book. Jackie, how's that publishing schedule on my book coming? Oh, uh, I don't know. Okay, well, you know, you'll the, look... uh, the fact checkers uh, have all quit. They all quit. They said they can't have their names associated with this. They said the bribes were not large enough. <laughs> so she also found a squalaraja, which was the a, tra- a fish, a transitional one between sharks and rays. So she was very smart, but did not have any like official learning on the subjects she just knew things from experience and she learned about anatomy and how to put things together and how to classify things like on the job basically so she didn't have much book learning she learned to read in sunday school and that was the extent of her formal education she was street smart (laughs) learned about fossils on the streets (laughs) (laughs) so she had kind of a hard time getting respect from people who were scientists who had gone to school and that combined with not being Anglican being an unmarried woman she wasn't given a lot of recognition for her discoveries or if she made a discovery she would sell it to someone and then they would publish about it so she had a lot of trouble with that but she did befriend several of the gentlemen uh, geologists and when she fell on hard times mostly because of her father's debts and then I believe she also made like a bad investment at some point some of the gentlemen geologists helped her out like lieutenant colonel thomas james birch when he heard that her family was in trouble financially he auctioned off some of the fossils that he had bought from her and then gave her family the proceeds which is really cool um and then um another time someone had made a watercolor painting of what life might have been like in Lyme Regis, back in the day when these animals, these creatures were alive. I'm hoping it's just like current day life, but the dinosaurs are doing all the things that, for that day, Lyme Regis citizens would be doing. So they're all <laughs> like, like playing cricket in the square. All taking Sunday afternoon strolls, all wearing incredibly modest bathing outfits. <laughs> Getting oh. struck by lightning under a tree. <laughs> all the Lyme Regis attractions you could imagine. Looking for fossils of older dinosaurs. Oh, no, they're looking for fossils of humans. And, like, there's there's one uh, there's one of Mary, and she's got she's a dinosaur, and she's holding up, like, human bones. <laughs> she settles man shells on the seashore. Uh, yes, yes. And this is one of the first paintings of that kind. So they turned it into, I forget whether it was an engraving or a daguerreotype or something, but they made prints of it and sold them, and then the profits they made from that went to her family. Because there are some nice people who wanted to help her and her struggling family out. So she was eventually made an honorary member of the Geological Society of London. She couldn't be a regular member because she was a woman. She got the honorary one. And eventually she did receive a pension from the British Association for the Advancement of Science um, in 1843. But then she died four years later of breast cancer. But the Geological Society ended up paying for some of her later in life expenses. And they had a stained glass window commemorated for her. Oh, cool. What's the what's the stained glass window picture? That exact scene I mentioned earlier? <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. Uh, no, it was an imagining of various acts of mercy, of, like, clothing the poor and things like that. Uh, she wasn't in any of this. Oh, okay. It was window in, in her honor. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but her, her eulogy was the first eulogy of a woman to be put in the quarterly transactions of the Geological Society. And her work was super dangerous because... The mudslides and landslides and rock falls that exposed the new... Necromantically animated bones. Yeah. yeah. Living skeletons. Witches curses. Like, it's a physically dangerous job. Sea hags who say you're on their home. Mm-hmm. Jealous mermaids out to steal your man. The drawings that you make from the ink from Cuttlefish come back alive and haunt you. 
dinosaurs that show up saying to stop digging up their relatives. He's <laughs> filing lawsuits against you. So they actually weren't dinosaurs, but they still look cool. The majority of fossils that she found were not like gigantic, exciting things. They were smaller things that you would sell to tourists. And they had fun names. They were called vertebraes. That was like a vertebrae that you would find and sell. Um, snake Sounds stones, like a cereal. ladies' fingers, Vertiberries. and devil's toenails. Oh, I like the devil's. I like that there's ladies' fingers and devil's toenails, mm-hmm. but never together. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all I got on Mary Anning, lightning-born fossil digger. That's a great title. A great epitaph. I hope that was in the eulogy. Oh, I don't think it was. I didn't read the text of it. Very good. It was mostly inspired by uh, Game of Thrones titles. <laughs> nice. She's a playable character in that great Dinosaur Rush board game that I have that we've played. Yeah, she's one of the paleontologists you can play. I've been reading a book that Jackie got me called Dragon Teeth, which is a Michael Crichton book about um, fossil excavators. And the only thing is, like, I need to look this up afterwards because they mention the, like, Crichton's, like, very good about mentioning um, how, like, the sort of historical context of the books he writes but he walks this weird line of between like whether or not he's making things up or he like everything he's presented are that the archaeologists like that he's presented which i think are cope and marsh or something like that they're real people and stuff and like they did all this stuff like he'll put in notes in the afterwards like this is when they died and this is how this happened this is how this happened but then you like don't know what's real and what's fake yeah because he's so like i don't know why he does it he sets up all of his fictional books as like historically accurate and filled with all these historical accurate like notes of like all this research he's did and all these source documents that don't exist there like is history fan fiction yeah, yeah. <laughs> mimicking the form but not the content so i'm gonna have to give you those or i'll look up on my own time after the story's done i i don't want to look it up until i'm done whether they're real or fake we should do an episode of anachronismo where we only do fake history yeah <laughs> so Speaking of making things from unexpected sources, perfect segue. Well, we already talked about Michael Crichton and his multiverse of okay, fictional wow. books that are factual in other universes. Yes, but, but this, this is, is another speaking making things from unexpected sources. I'm going to talk about Samuel A. Stochek, the New York violin maker. We still have to make violins out of good tone wood. And in the 17th, 18th through the 19th centuries, the world's best violins and the best violin wood was felled in the south slopes of the Alps, Samuel Stochek had a bit of a different approach. In the 1940s, his tone wood didn't come from mountain ranges. It came from condemned and destroyed buildings that had been built in the 19th century because you need to age violin tone wood to get it to that perfect sound. So what a lot of violin makers would do is buy wood and then put it down to age for the next generation. I was going to ask if fiddles have such requirements, or if you could just make a fiddle at anything. I have no idea. Maybe. Um, fiddle is supposed to be like a lower lower echelon. I've never been clear on the difference between violins and fiddles, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. So I think one's just played by poorer people. So Sam didn't apprentice under any violin-making guilds. He wasn't an apprentice who'd become journeyman, become a master. He was self-taught, so he didn't have access or money for that beautiful tone wood. But he did know that a lot of New York buildings going to be demolished had been made with very good wooden floorboards, which no one wanted because they were fit for that building. So after these buildings were auctioned off and all their stuff was sold and they were slated for demolition, he would just walk through the buildings and look at the wood and, like, knock on it. And be like, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to take this, and you get a big saw, and And he would take himself some wood from these old buildings. that that is the noise he was making as he was sawing. Like it's going like making whatever noise was like. I'm just imagining that he like the way he figured this out was one day he was just sitting in his apartment across the street from a building that's about to be condemned and destroyed, and he looks wistfully down into his arm where he's holding a violin made out of a tissue box and rubber bands. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this doesn't sound right. <laughs> How can I improve? <laughs> <laughs> and then he sees it through the window across the street. Wood. It's beautiful wood. <laughs> Not tissue boxes. Wood. That's the answer. Not rubber bands. Whatever they make violin strings out of. Guts? I don't know. I'll Sitting? find out. 
Can I use this old refrigerator for violin strings? No, but I can use this old tub for a banjo. (laughs) So he was interviewed by the legendary beat reporter Meyer Berger, and Stocek described his way of, like, looking at finding violin-making materials as, um, people have lived with this wood. People have died with this wood. They have sat by the fire, and they have loved, and they have quarreled. Ah, someone will play in the wood will tell these stories. And he was asked about, like, why he liked this wood. So, his whole backstory, and we'll see if your theories about how he came to think of this are correct, or even mentioned. <laughs> so, Not even mentioned. As a teen, he worked in an auto shop, and he found out that he, he really liked working with his hands there. Uh, and he had learned to play the violin as a child, but his parents weren't from money, they weren't able to afford a good violin, so he decided that he was going to try making his own, because he liked working with his hands. So, what he did was, he heard about these two Ukrainian brothers... Paul and John Homanik, who had moved from Ukraine to New York to open up a, a, a luthier shop. And he went to them and asked if he could work for them. And they said, oh, you sure, you can come on as an unpaid apprentice. <laughs> and they asked him to make them a violin, which he made and in 1925 sold for $50, which 1925 bucks, pretty good. And he was so excited that he made 50 bucks. He made 12 more violins that year, which he realized uh, later... Great for making a quick buck, not great for making a good violin. So he committed himself to it professionally, leaving the auto shop and going to work and like making and selling instruments in 1927. And his greatest obstacle was affording quality tone wood, wood with tonal qualities, like sycamore, spruce, maple, the traditional violin woods. So, like I said before, in the old guilds of Europe, by tradition, a violin maker might buy wood, put it down to age for the next generation. And usually, American violin makers in the 1920s bought their woods from Italy and Yugoslavia and Germany and got it shipped to New York docks. But in even, even back in the 1920s, you couldn't just call yourself a violin maker by the Violin Guild standards. You had to study for four years, then work as a journeyman, then go back and study for another two years to get your master's papers. And until you became a master violin maker, you couldn't put your name on a violin you made. You couldn't say, I'm a self-taught violin maker. This is my violins. I'm a violin maker. They, like, there was a whole system. But Stocek couldn't afford that system. He wasn't part of that system. He'd never heard of that system. He was entirely self-taught. So he hit on the cost-effective strategy of reclaiming perfectly usable tone wood from old wrecked buildings. Uh, and yeah, maybe maybe he was tuning one of his shitty violins like, I could make one better if I just had tone wood. <laughs> I'm walking through a hotel, kicking at the floor at a fancy party. So I make violins, but I'm not very good and sees the floors. Like, mm, that's good, but I can make good wood out of that. Wait a second. So apparently the places where he liked to concentrate to find the, the good wood was in Midtown near Canal Street in New York with buildings that were at least 70 or 80 years old. Apparently in Uptown, too much steel, too much modern construction. Downtown, buildings too cheap, not enough good wood. Midtown was the happy medium. And then he would, like, break down walls to force the building to be condemned. So <laughs> Dress up as a ghost. <laughs> this place is Ru- The sounds of haunted rubber string violins play through these hallowed halls. Just a bad, out-of-tune violin. (laughs) I would have gotten away for it, too, if it weren't for those meddling violinists (laughs) and that violin-playing dog. That's incredible. (laughs) So, Stochek taught himself from a how-to book called Violin Making, as it was and is, being a historical, theoretical, and practical treatise on the science and art of violin making for the use of violin makers and players, amateur and professional, which was written in 1884 by Edward Heron Allen. Based on that book and on his work with the Homanek brothers, he worked on his templates, his own varnishes, all the details of gradation and toning and sanding, and pretty much taught himself through trial and error. Now, a lot of a lot of what makes a violin tone is like the varnish and the way it's aged and all this sort of stuff. So that he was able to, without having, having any formal training, figure out like these chemical compositions for just the right varnish is, is very, very amazing. So some of the places, some of the examples of where his floorboard violin would came from, I'm, I'm going to go through. Yeah. Uh, is there a haunted hospital? Um, or an insane asylum? No, no, An orphanage? No. Oh, it had a terrible disaster. No, sorry. 
An old lady with a cursed locket. <laughs> I don't know where the wood comes in in that comes, one. It comes but... out of the locket. <laughs> a modern zoo where yeah. the animals walk around on wooden floors instead of grass. With beautiful attempt... tap shoes, yes. <laughs> an attempt to make <laughs> them closer to us. Oh, an old movie theater. That's the closest so far. Um... An old regular theater. <laughs> <laughs> an old practice space. So, a no. tenement building. Yes. So there's mention of a 150-plus-year-old curly maple floorboard from a lean-to in New Brunswick, New Jersey. There is a 100-year-old board marked for a violin that came from an old house on Elizabeth Street near Canal Street, for which Stochek paid 15 cents to the old watchman who lived there. You can catch the Dragon Star Chinese bus there. Mm, oh, really? That's very specific. Elizabeth Street and uh, Canal Street. Oh, maybe you can see the, the place where that house was and see the ghosts. There's also mention of a light brown spruce log from the back of an old house near a racetrack, which was supposed to be a bar for a restaurant. <laughs> he also rescued a fine piece of wood from the last days of Hotel Shelburne in 1928, after the hotel's interiors, furniture, diningware, uh, and probably some of the staff were auctioned off. Uh, it was What's raised. Staff? Okay, I that went through that quick. Okay, that was that was me making that up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was raised, and Stochek told Berger that he walked through the wreckage and look at picking out spruce and maple from the ruins. So in 1938, he relocated from Brooklyn to Manhattan. In the interview, it said that he was so that he would be taken seriously as a violin maker. And he settled on a site near the performers in the NBC Symphony Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic at 117 West 48th Street, right above Budapest, a Hungarian restaurant with a floor show that was part of the racy nightclub scene that openly reestablished itself after Prohibition. <laughs> so a little, a little like moving up in the world, a little moving down in the world. Yeah. I got a better address, but I'm right on one of those dancing girl shows. <laughs> but, oh man, those floorboards, those dancing girls are going to beat them into a very good, thin, resonating tone wood. Oh, the stories they have. Yeah, he just goes into one of those shows and like the entire time there's all these dancers on stage and he's just looking right down at the floor and he's like, yeah, all right. Two okay. more steps and then I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't Brings wait the... for this place to become haunted. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Starts spreading rumors about one of the dancing girls dying and then People shows up. People want to take my ghost story seriously. <laughs> I need to move to a higher populated area. Really right in the heart of things. Start doing more murders. Ten years later, someone has this violin and they're like, I'm trying to play classical music, but it only plays 20s pop. <laughs> what is going on? It's a mystery. The violin knows what it wants to play, what story it wants to tell, what song These it floors have heard a lot of ghost stranglings. <laughs> Just give it some gin. The floorboards love gin. There was a lot of gin spilled on them back in the old days. <laughs> So in 1938, the globally celebrated young violinist, Ossie Renardi, put on a blindfold and played a Stochek violin and a Stradivarius at a violin expo to prove that Stochek's work sounded as good as the master Luthier's. And he must have liked what he heard because he used that violin to record Paganini's Caprices number no. 3 and 4. Afterwards, Renardi wrote a letter to Stochek. Not even the critic could detect any difference in the tonal quality of your instrument as compared with the Guarneri and Guadagnini used for the remaining recordings. Please accept my congratulations on your achievement in creating a very fine violin. My invoice is <laughs> You may use this in your advertising, but you must pay me ten cents every time. Max, I don't know if this will make it into the final cut, but I do like when you were trying to get the Italian name right, you started like hand gesturing. <laughs> <laughs> like when your hands just started going like this. That's that's how that's how you I snap into it, yeah. yeah that's how that's how you get your Italian pronunciation going. <laughs> uh for listeners who can't see uh, my hand started making the the classical uh, hey, expounding on something, ringing tiny hands. bells upside down, tiny uh, upside down bell hands. The the old the old stereotype hands, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, but it wasn't until the 1940s that Stochek started getting the biggest press, partly because his newest violin shop was now in the theater district and on the beat of several newspaper colonists, including Meyer Berger, who is the 
reporter who I've been talking about most of this time. So business started to really take off, and they moved again to the fancy violin maker's street on West 57th. And uh, What's the which, name? Right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, between 7th and 8th Avenues, Fancy Violin Maker Street. We've got a little shingle above in the shape of a fancy violin maker. Um, it just looks like a regular man. Mm-hmm. You just have to know. Mm-hmm. Um, Imagine it like, like, instead of like in like Chinatown where sometimes they have like the inside out rabbits, they have like inside out violins just hanging down in the street and people are picking through <laughs> like an open marketplace. Mm, good strings. <laughs> Are the rabbits inside out? Sometimes. I, just a, I think so. Just skinned. Or they're skinned? I don't know. Yeah. Skinned rabbits. They don't, they're just inside so skin. out. You're right. You're right. Skinned, skinned violins. <laughs> so just the inside of the violin. I don't know a lot about violin, but I think it's mostly springs in there. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't think there are, are any springs. No, I'm, no, I'm, no, it's like this is a comedy podcast and I'm making a joke. It's all a tissue. That's right. What? That's really? how you get the different sounds on your tissue box violin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different numbers of yeah, so just a bunch of tissues dangling in the breeze. At this point, his violins were selling for $1,000 each, which was double what pretty much every other U.S.-based violin maker was charging for their instruments. So how did he get so good? Because these were quality violins. So there are apparently three things that are sort of agreed upon that you have to have access to or be able to do. Uh, to be a really good violin maker. One, you need to have good hands and dexterity with good hand-to-eye coordination. Two, you need to have an idea of how to make a violin. And three, you need to have access to really good violins to study. But most people, they don't have access to that. You can't, most people, they can't look at a Stradivarius. They can't, like, go and be like, oh, yes, this is how Guadagnini. That's just the hand again. (laughs) There we go. Uh, You can't look at a Guadagnini easily. So how did Sochek get to such a high level? He had stolen one a long time ago. Ooh, ooh, what do you think, Noel? And that stealing one sounds pretty good. Or the Ukrainian brothers had another brother, but he was really a violin. <laughs> Just a violin wearing a mustache and a hat. Can't go with stolen now, but maybe he had enough contacts in the violin playing world that he's like, hey, can I just uh, borrow this violin for a second? He just found to... one in a condemned building. So according to both of his daughters, so of Stochek's daughters, one day, a man in ill-fitting clothes showed up at the store and wanted to buy a cello. And Stochek gave him a, named like a ludicrously high price to drive off this man who he obviously thought was just like some bum who was trying, you know, trying to buy a cello for booze money or something. And the man walked up to the counter and handed him a check with the famous New York millionaire Horace O'Havemeyer's name on it. This man in his poor clothes was Dr. Catlin, the son-in-law of Horace O'Havemeyer. And owned, among other things, the Botticello, made in 1714, and the King Joseph de Gessu, a 1737 violin acknowledged as the masterpiece of Guarnerius. And he wanted a Stochek violin to add to his collection. Well, a Stochek cello. When he came back to pick up the cello, he heard Stochek's daughter, Bernice, practicing. He was impressed by her ability to play, and she was, I think, in her teens at the time. And Stochek rattled off, like, oh, she's played here, she's done this, she's done this person, and... So Catelyn decided to ask her to play for his father-in-law and let her practice with his Stradivarius that she would bring home and practice. And so Stochek got a chance to look at and study the Stradivarius as his daughter was using it. His daughter said that when she came home with the Stradivarius, her father broke down in tears looking at it and handling it. He was so excited and happy. By the end of the 40s, he was making three or four violins a year and supporting pretty much his whole family off of that. For such concert and radio artists as legendary cellist Leonard Rose, William Linzer, even child prodigy Ruggieri Ricci, who after a debut of nine had once been profiled as one of the most famous six children in the world along with Jackie Coogan and the seven-year-old Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Clarissa Joan Hart. Justin Bieber. Uh, Clarissa Joan Hart? What did I say? Clarissa. Well, she explained it all. Charlotte. Um, mm -hmm. And whatever her brother's name is. Uh, So, in 1948, Bernice, daughter of Stochek, played one of her father's violins on the TV show Arthur Godfrey and his Talent Scouts, which was sort of a 1940s American Idol, and uh, won, uh, which I thought was a nice little anecdote, yeah. And in 1951, uh, Stochek moved to Mount Kisco in Westchester and opened a music store where he 
sold and repaired everything. Brass, woodwind, percussion, and just stopped making violins. In 1976, he died in his home from emphysema. Kind of a scattered story, but I thought it was just so charming. That he yeah, no, he Did he ever there. play? So when he was a child, his parents wanted him to have violin lessons and told him to practice, but he hated being told what to do, so he didn't practice a lot. He was, a, a, by all accounts, a fair to middling player, but nothing, like, outshone easily by his daughters. He knew enough about playing violins to know what a good one sounded like, but he wasn't, like, a really impressive player. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you make violins out of? Lots of bubblegum to tell the story of each person who would shoot it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking fossilized wood. Because imagine all the stories about that fossilized wood would have to tell. They're like the floorboards of the world. They'd only be able to to play one song. It's a great song. (laughs) (laughs) Great song, great composer. So, make a violin out of the floorboards of the Oval Office, um, so that you can hear presidential secrets. If the president does it, it's not a song. It was an inside job. (laughs) The bunnies actually got him. Jimmy Carter's just a bunch of bunnies in a skin suit. (laughs) You would be surprised to find out how many presidents that's true about. (laughs) Lyndon B. Johnson didn't have a car that could float. It was a lie to distract from the fact that he was the man on the knoll. It actually wasn't a car. It was a boat with wheels. (laughs) You would think that people would have noticed, but... He was the president. And any time they said, isn't that a mast and a bunch of sails? And he said, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> And legally, they had to believe him. <laughs> legally. <laughs> well, I think now it should be time for What If They Met. Everyone's favorite segment. What if they met? They never met. But what if they met? These two people from history. What if they had met? Would they have been friends? What if they met? What if uh, Mary, who sold seashells, had met Lyndon B. Johnson, who drove cars into rivers it's like i imagine that she has like this even though she had a store it's like she's starting out she has this like just little like homemade almost like lemonade stand that's like right on the beach and then you see this car coming and linda's just like two birds with one stone (laughs) whoa the car's out of control and she's like no stop (laughs) these are once living things now now they're dead just like you mary I was thinking wow. that they could they could team up, and she could bring all her um, excavation tools and like pile it up in the car, and then they'd drive sail to um, parts of the cliffs that she couldn't have reached otherwise. And who knows what else she would have discovered? Maybe, Maybe a dinosaur. Maybe a real living dinosaur, because that was that was in the eighteen hundreds. They might have still been alive back then. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time ago. Now they've all been killed by global warming. Yeah. Okay. Well, I took that to a sad place instead of a fun place. Now they've all been oh, killed by. Oh, something else sad. Oh, sure. <laughs> as you laugh. Uh, I don't know. So I was going to do this as an aside of uh, historical dogs, but it was kind of sad. So Mary Anning had a, her trusty dog Trey would accompany her on most of her excavations, and then he was crushed in a landslide. She you survived. I I choose to believe that it was a cover up, and he was crushed by a living dinosaur. Yes, that dinosaur probably was like, they're getting close to where I am. And then he scrambled up the hill and caused a landslide. I'd like to imagine that the dog was called Trey, like T-R-A-Y, and she would tie a little tray to him and put (laughs) fossils in him, and he would carry him to other places around. Like, Thank you for your help, Trey. (laughs) What if 
John Quincy's alligator yeah. had come across Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and the boat was swimming right at him. Well, I that... can't break. Alligators can't swim. <laughs> Is that a swamp alligator? That's a giant I... swamp rabbit with I... sc- scales. <laughs> I can't hurt him. He's a part of history. Go on, get alligator. <laughs> Why are you dressing up like a sexy lady, alligator? <laughs> Where is this going? Where do you want this to go? Don't tell my rabbit wife or human <laughs> wife. Oh, I shouldn't have become a bigamist with a rabbit. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you liked us, please, we'd love to see reviews on iTunes, written or just stars, you know, what have you, or whatever, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also contact us at, on Twitter at, at @anacpodcast. that's A-N-A-C podcast, or via email at itsanachronismo at gmail.com. Um, we still have that show coming up at the end of April uh, at the Democracy Center. That's April 29th. 28th. April 28th. We are going to be doing a show with Improv History and doing a half-hour live show. Uh, so, you know, please come on down if you're in the Cambridge area. Um, yeah. Please bear in mind that Max's social security number is... How did you find that out? (laughs) Shut in the dark. (laughs) There's a lot of interesting mail around here while you're setting up the recording that I read through. Okay, well, I can edit that out. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Max. I'm Noel. I'm Jackie. And this has been... Anachronismo. Harbinger of doom and history.